Have you ever asked yourself, why do I like it? Why do I like this food? Why do I like the way this sounds? Why does this look great to me? You got to ask yourself these questions. Regardless of whether you're trying to be a, a film director, or if you're trying to be an actor, if you're trying to be a chef, or if you're just trying to understand why, what is it about this image that I like so much? And essentially what you're doing when you ask yourself that question is that you're examining your instincts, right? You're examining where you go to naturally with something, right? Well, like I said, if it's food, like this food tastes really good to me. Is it because you like sweet? Do you, are you a sweet or a salty person, right? I really like the way this sounds. Is it because you like, like, like the speed of how it's played? Do you like the key in which it's played in? And I like the way this looks. I don't know how often I have talked to folks, whether it is being a cinematographer and shooting, or if I'm, if I'm color grading something, or if I'm working in the edit room, and I'm asking somebody, what would you like here? What would you like to see? And more often than not, you hear this response. Can you just make it look good? Can you make it look beautiful? Can you make it look great? Right? And I know there's a lot of you listening that are chuckling because you hear this on a daily basis. And so then when you say to them, you, by nature, I have to ask them, hey, well, what do you think looks great? What is your definition of beauty? Right? What are you feeling for this sequence? And a lot of times people will look back at you when you, when you ask them the question back, they blink a few times and then they start to look off and they're like, I don't know why I like this. I don't know what it is about this thing that I like so much. And here's the line. Here's the, here's the move. This is what, this is what the show does. Okay. That is the point in which you decide to look on the other side of the curtain or you don't with anything, right? That could be beer. I have made a conscious effort to not give a shit about how beer is made. I don't want to know. I don't want to look on the other side of the curtain. Oftentimes I will pick a brew based upon the label or the marketing for it. And now I know that there are a lot of you guys out there that are listening that are like, listen, man, that's not how you drink beer. And you should know all the specifics about how it's brewed and the differences between the hops that they use and everything else. I have put my foot down and said, I do not want to know these things because I don't want it ruined for me. I enjoy the blissful element. I am like, what's his name from the matrix where he sits across from the agent while eating the steak. And he says, I know this isn't real, but damn, it tastes good. And that's the question, right? So that's the point. So the, if you're sitting here going, look, I'm someone that can't explain why I like this image. That's because you're living where you're supposed to be living. That's where we want the audience to be at that point where they go, I really like this. I don't know why, but I really like this. That's great. You're an audience member at that point. But if you're deciding that you want to work in this business, if you're deciding if you want to work in a film, if you want to be a director, you need to ask yourself those questions consistently. 
And you need to examine what it is that you like about images because then you need to be able to translate it to the people that are going to make it happen for you. Okay? And so today's episode, very excited about today's episode because today we're going back into the world of color grading. We're going to jump back in. I've got a really great guest today and we're going to talk about instinct. We're going to talk a bit about instinct. We're going to talk about uh, how she found her instincts through classic art and through painting. And then that merging of instinct and understanding with tech and technology. And that is a colorist job. It's this crazy crashing together of ones and zeros and emotional context. And so that's what we're going to talk about on today's episode. So joining me today, all the way from New York City, is the senior colorist over at Sim in New York. Uh, her name is Lucy Barbier Durnley, and uh, she is wonderful. I've already done the interview, so I already know how great she is. Uh, and together we talk about the state of the business right now in New York. Uh, so those of you listening in New York, you know, you guys have it a little bit better than we do out here in Los Angeles. Um, but we also get deep into uh, color grading. And I try not to get too technical on this episode because look, the reality of it is 50-50 here, guys. It's 50% art and 50% tech. So we tackle a little bit about tech. We talk a little bit about HDR. We talk about what it's like working in an industry where you're consistently trying to keep up with the manufacturers that are making things in this industry and how this changes how we do art. We get into that deeply. Um, but we also just talk about what it's like to try to convey emotion with color and contrast on screen. It's a lot of fun. And those of you listening that are like, oh, really? It's, look, there are so many exciting little aspects of making movies. And it's my goal on this show to not only do broad episodes in which we talk about dick and fart jokes and everything else, but we also get into these little intricacies. And these are the things that I just get to discover when I make movies, right? I've been able to go to a handful of really amazing colorist spaces. And you walk into these buildings and sometimes you have to go in and you have to sign like an NDA immediately because you never know what you're going to see. You might walk down the hall and see like a Michael Bay movie being color graded in a room. So you sign an NDA, you sit down, and these workspaces are usually really beautiful, beautiful spots because these poor colorists are usually trapped within these rooms for 15, 16 hours a day, right? And they're usually dealing with ridiculous time, time schedules and time frames and we're never going to give you enough time and this is going to be, this has got to air in two weeks and you got to bang all this stuff out. You got to deal with all these issues. So their spaces are usually really gorgeous and you go into these little worlds and you walk into these dark little rooms and like i say on the show it's like walking onto uh the control deck of a battleship and there are all these different levels and stages and, and there are the, the color greatest on the bottom and this is in all spaces sometimes you walk into an office and it's a friendly colorist and their monitors and they're sitting and they're turning squinting at the light coming from the doorway and they turn and look at you like hey welcome it's always fun. Going and hanging out with a colorist is always fun. It's always exciting because it's the best part. You get to see the images polished. And you get to spend time really learning 
with colorists. If you have an opportunity to hire a color grading artist and go sit in for the final session, do it because you get to learn how it works. You get to start to learn about color theory. You get to start to see how when you tweak a specific color, how it changes the emotion of the entire scene, how it starts to label a character differently. It is one of the coolest jobs out there. It is a lot of fun. You should look into it. And if you're interested in any way, do yourself a favor, strap yourselves in and get ready for today's episode. Now, before we get into it, do me a favor, continue to visit and show support by visiting me on Instagram at Mike Petchy at Instagram or following the podcast. That's a love of the process pod. That's a love of the process pod on Instagram. There I have been doing all sorts of really fun things. That's where I released the t-shirt line. That is where I talk about episodes. That's where you can send me suggestions for episodes. I'm telling you right now, today's episode was booked by a guest on the show, was booked by a friend on the show. So it's super easy to do. I like to interact with you guys. Send me some reviews. Tell me anything you think about the show. You can do that through Instagram. Also, head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com and sign up for our newsletter. Okay, so we're doing a brand new newsletter. I think we're gonna be featuring uh, listeners of the show. We're gonna be featuring the work of guests of the show. It's gonna become a resource for you. It'll be a place that you can go to find new and interesting stuff, stuff that we're watching and we're liking. Um, And it's gonna be a great place for giveaways, for contests, all sorts of stuff. So I don't know why I haven't done it. We're in like year three right now and I haven't done a newsletter. So fucking busy, that's why. <laughs> so you guys are gonna get on now. So head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com and sign up for the brand new newsletter. All right, without further ado, grab those noise-canceling headphones, sit back and relax. A brand new episode about color grading on In Love With The Process. So welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, so we were just talking offline. You are in New York. How's how's New York life for you right now? New York is uh, slowly getting back to normal-ish. Um, you know, everyone is still social distancing and uh, wearing the mask. Um, but, you know, we can eat indoors now. Restaurants um, operate at like 30% capacity for indoors. Some mm-hmm. parts have reopened. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think malls have reopened as well. I'm not sure. I don't think um, all the movie theaters have reopened. Some of them have, I think. Um, but I'm still really paranoid about it, so I tend to stay away from shops and um, <laughs> malls and places like that. Um, I, don't, I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. Yeah. Um, but I, I do. Say, I would say um, I went back into the office when um, New York reopened, so like in phase two at the end of June. Mm-hmm. And it's just so much better. Like for me as a colorist, you know, um, working from home was just a nightmare. Um, I had a skylight in my previous apartment, so I would have reflections on my monitor, left, right, center. It was just 
it was just a nightmare to try and control the environment. Um, I can imagine. I mean, like I'm in the same boat because I have my edit system in my, because I'm still here in my house. So I have my edit system in my living room and we have beautiful windows. And so when it comes time to doing anything, you're just like, can we shut all the curtains? Can we make this into a vampire cave, please? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's just depressing, right? Yeah. 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 Because then you, then you live there. So then the, the other big move is that you like roll out of bed and then you're like, am I going to put clothes on? <laughs> I can go to work yeah. in my pajamas again? Like, what am I doing? Yeah, I did that for a few weeks. I just could not like get used to it, you know, like just work in my pajamas. And, yeah, <laughs> weird. and then you're like day three, you're like, have I showered? Did I eat? Right. Do I have any sort of schedule? It's for post-production, because I've been doing uh, post, I've been editing for the past couple of weeks for my girlfriend who's been doing music videos. Luckily, she's had a series of really great work through the pandemic. That's great. Um, and so I've been like, hey, I'll help you out. I'll do a bunch of editing. So it's been like two or three weeks of cutting. And you just hit a point where you're like, what day is it? Where am I? And there's, there's no sense of like leaving. At least when you have an office, you can like get dressed you right. act like you're a human being. Like so you might actually interact with other people. So mm-hmm. you, you learn how to speak again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, that was a big thing. Yeah, it's like, oh, how yeah. to interact? How to say hi? Like, do we elbow? Do we what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so are you are you back in the office full time now? Yes, back in the office full time uh, with a couple other people. I'm the only colorist back uh, in the office. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, it's just, it's just so much better. Well, it must have been interesting. And I know we're jumping right into this. And for those of you listening to the show, uh, today we're talking about colorists. We're talking about coloring. Uh, we've done prior episodes about colorists. So I'm just going to jump right into it. I don't want to go into the history of this stuff. If you guys want to know more, go back and listen to another fucking episode. <laughs> Let's just get right into it. Um, so f- doing stuff at home must have been difficult because... With coloring, it's all about calibration. It's all about making sure that you're seeing the proper color. It's all about making sure that you're in the same, the right environment. Um, did you, do you just own really great calibrated stuff, or did they have to ship a bunch of gear to you to be able to work from home? Um, so they shipped my um, my X three hundreds, my Sony X three hundred, which was calibrated. Um, so that was fine. Thank God I had that. Um, but um, comes to the streaming platforms, the collaborative streaming platforms like Evercast or Clearview or Streambox, I feel like at first the technology just wasn't there. Um, I remember when we went to lockdown, I was working on a, a HDR show that released on Hulu not too long ago called Monsterland. And mm-hmm. um it was just so difficult because the signal was an eight bit signal and I was grading HDR and I just could not see like, like even like visually I was looking at my scopes and just visually it didn't make sense. Like where the highlights and where the shadows sat. So it was a lot of me trying to figure out like what is the right level, what is the right balance and then exporting loads of ProRes and then check the color uh, back on the X300. Um, So that was a bit of a nightmare. And um, then we tried Clearview, which was a bit better. The latency was a bit better. Um, 
especially when you do remote session with the clients, that like you have some services that you have like a five or seven seconds delay, which, you know, mm-hmm. is not ideal because when you're doing a correction, you, you want them to see immediately, right? You want them to see it live. And you do yeah. it, and I'm like, there you go. And they're like, mm, not seeing it. And I'm like, okay, what about yeah. now? Not seeing it. I'm like, okay. So <laughs> it was a bit tricky. Um, so that's another reason why it, it just wasn't for me. I didn't have the patience for it. Um, yeah. 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 I don't blame you because what you end up. I think what you end up doing is you find yourself in in that flow. You get to a position where you've designed your 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 gear, you've learned how to use your technology, and you have all that in the right position. Because ultimately, with all this computer stuff, whether you're editing or whether you're color grading, you want it to work as fast as you can imagine it. And so that that speed and efficiency, especially when you're doing such a larger project and you're dealing with people that are sitting in the room with you that have schedules that have timelines, and you're just like. I don't want to be waiting on latency. I don't want to be waiting on these things because it just kills the vibe and it kills the mood of the space, correct? It really does. It, yeah, it really was a big issue for me. Um, and it's not only that. It, it was only. It was also their, you know, your internet connection. So, mm. you know, I had to, like, up my, my connection at home. But then, you know, some of my clients would be in, Montana, like in the middle of nowhere, so like with really poor connection, and then you know their signal would look even worse and all pixelated, and you know for some clients it would take longer than other clients that were on the same line. So it was just you know, but everyone kind of understood the situation, and everyone was kind of patient and like nice about it. So that was good. Still frustrating for me. But yeah, it, was, it was nice of them to just understand that. Well, I mean, one would assume that they would. I mean, we're all in the same boat with this shit. And yeah, right. like across the board, it's frustrating. Same thing with podcasting. Like normally what I would do if we weren't in this thing, I'd probably be in New York and I'd say, let's hang out. We'd have a couple glasses of red wine and some snacks and we'd be yeah, just that's chilling. That's the way to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's part of, that's how we were doing the show before. And now we're in this boat where like you and I are visibly meeting each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah. it's, but it's, you know, what we're making do. That's just us bitching. It's what we're, we're making do with it. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about your history and what it is that uh, you love about color grading. And I was doing a bit of research on you and it looks like you come from a fine arts background and that you do some painting, right? You're also a painter. That was my big thing as a kid. Yeah. Um, I used to paint a lot. Um, and I wanted to become a painter, but my parents were like, no, you need to pay your bills. That is not happening. You need to to get a proper degree and a proper job. So I was like, great. Um, so I studied PR, um, in France actually. And, um, the school I was at in France offered like an exchange program with New York Institute of Technology. Mm -hmm. So I did my last year, um, in New York and then they had all these amazing courses like post-production, after effect, editing, script writing, directing. And I was like, whoa, this has got nothing to do with PR, but that's amazing. <laughs> um, I was just so done with PR um, that 
I took on all of these like, you know, filmmaking courses and um, just absolutely fell in love with it. So when I graduated after doing um, some like Photoshop and um, editing internships, Mm-hmm. I got a job at Company 3 as a dustbuster uh, so mm-hmm. for restoration. And, uh, yeah, I remember sitting down with the colorist there and just completely falling in love with color, and it just kind of clicked in my head. Like, it was, for me, it was like digitally painting. It was, it kind of reminded me of when I was a kid, and I was like, yeah, that, that's what I want to do. So from there, I just, you know, learn about color grading and practice and practice and like you know spend time with my mentors and here i am (laughs) it's so cool and look i i have so sort of similar humble beginnings the same way you do where i originally wanted to be a comic book artist and i thought that was my thing and so for years i took fine arts courses and i learned how to like oil paint and figure draw and watercolor and all that sort of stuff and uh this was when I was in high school. And when I went to, to apply to a art school, I was a terrible student. So when I went and applied to the art school, I didn't get in. And so I was just like, well, fuck this. So, <laughs> uh, so I didn't end up doing that. And I went and worked for a music store. And then I ended up uh, wanting to get into radio. And then I realized that radio was useless. And once again, I was like, fuck this. And I was out of radio. And I happened to take a film course and it was everything. And it was everything I loved. It was telling stories in a two dimensional frame. And it was, uh, uh, introducing people to sounds and music and, and, uh, and bringing vibes and, and, and tone and, and themes to people. And so I fell in love with directing, but initially it was, I wanted to draw. I wanted to be a comic book artist, the same kind of thing. And I'm happy that I had that training Yeah, because I use it every, every day I use my compositional skills. I use my, my, um, understanding of, uh, contrasting colors and the color palettes and everything else, you know? Yeah. Um, do you find that you're falling back on the stuff that you know from painting when you are actually color grading? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. When I, um, when I sit down and I try to create a look for a film, yeah, I kind of go back to like the same, mentality like the same approach um Mm -hmm. but it's so it's it's so different right like it's it's a lot more technical in a different way um with the technology you know and like the color science and you know nowadays hdr and all of that is you know everything got a lot more complicated than what it was um totally so it is similar, but in in a way, but also very, very different. Well, there's a bunch of topics that I want to touch upon, but just to get back to the art stuff, I think what was interesting about it, and you can agree or disagree with me on this, like I think what it taught me was my instincts yeah. or helped refine my instincts. So like when I see, <clears throat> whenever I'm, if I'm doing Photoshop work or if I'm color grading or if I'm, or if I'm uh, when I was cinematographer for a while and I'm talking to people about or directors about color, you know, or I'd ask them like why they like something. It always blew my mind that they had trouble verbalizing it. They'd look at a frame and go, I like that. And you go, why do you like it? And they're like, Mm. I don't know. I like it. And I'm like, is it, is it the color? Yes. The color is great. Why is the color great? Is it because 
that orange is set up against the blue that is on the opposite end of the spectrum? Is that what it is? Huh. You know, and so I feel like I was fortunate to have that training as a classical artist because it sort of set, it gave me the tools to verbalize what I like. That is so important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, does that make sense? It it completely makes sense. Yeah. Um, For me, it, it was similar. It was all about the emotions. That's the best word I find to kind of describe it. It was the way the painting would make me feel, how I would approach it, like what kind of emotion I wanted to like portray. And mm-hmm. when I'm coloring, when I'm um, working on the on the look, it's the same thing. I sit down with the film, watch it without any color, with the sound to kind of immerse myself in the story and try to figure out how I can help the emotion, um, you know, with color grading. Mm-hmm. It, and a lot of people don't realize too, and there are all sorts of studies out there about the emotions that come with specific colors. Yeah. And how you subconsciously, uh, there are all these different charts out there, like red supposedly means love, energy, and power. Blue is for like tranquility and loyalty and love. There are all like these sort of subconscious things that may or may not be true. Um, but uh, they definitely help. And it, when I'm planning out sequences or if I'm putting together a scene, I'm always asking myself as a director, what is the mood? Yeah. What is the mood and who controls this scene? And what is the theme of each of these characters? And then how can I convey that visually so that if there was no dialogue and you're watching this thing, that it still makes sense? Yeah. Um, it's incredibly powerful. And then to be able to take it into the colorist um, and have them accentuate those colors and have them really pop those colors and, and, and uh, show the contrast between them is huge, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. And it's so interesting because like, you might feel a certain way about a scene, but then someone else might not, you know, like it's down to the individuals. So that's also very interesting. But um, yeah, I think color helps massively when it comes to that with all the different nuances and, you know, the different curves and like the different tones and shades. And yeah, when it all comes together, it's, it can, it can be really powerful. Um, and then when, obviously when you add sound, it's just, you know, yeah, over the top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I love all this stuff. And you, you make a good point. It really is, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do as, as, um, as artists is we're trying to study the patterns. We're tr- I, it, essentially, you call it the language of cinema. You're trying to study the reaction to techniques that have come before you. So like, if it's like, hey, this is a stretch zoom. Remember when they did that in Jaws? That meant this. So if I do this again, it's probably going to re- Uh, reference when they did that in Jaws and so there's that specific language and then when you start to get into the details of cinema whether it's like color or wardrobe or textures now we're talking about the language that exists with us as humans prior to this like when you see red what does red usually symbolify blood okay great so then you're trying to tap into that psychology too but then at the end of the day it's all, it's all down in the mind of the person viewing it. So yeah. like I've had scenes where like I've had really great characters and there's that one person that sits there and goes, I hate that lead. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, when I was a kid, I got picked on and he had red hair and she's got red hair. So fuck her. And I'm like, okay, well, there's nothing I can do about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everyone's like experiences. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, but the thing about color grading, and I think it's one of the, a lot of you guys listening may, may or may not know how post-production works, but typically once you get yourself into picture lock, then you have like these two different things to happen. You have the color grading that happens, and then you usually send yourself your stuff off to be sound mixed. Um, there are obviously different variations on it, different production schedules, but if you're doing your own small project, typically what you do is you get your edit to picture lock so that you're not pissing everybody off. And then you send it out to be graded and you send it out to be sound designed. And there are two amazing processes. And I'm always completely torn as to which, <laughs> which room I end up in because yeah. color grading in itself is so magical. It's such a magical thing to watch happen. say that, yeah. A lot you know, of people love, and then, love the process more so than the sound design. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Well, it's a lot more, I mean, it's sexy. I've done, like I was at Company 3 doing our last film and, you know, you go in the room and it's it's like you walk onto like the control deck of a battleship, the way the <laughs> rooms are like built, Yeah. you know? And then you've you've got like the friendliest colorist sitting down at the bottom, you know, and they're just like, can't wait to get started. Meanwhile, in their head, they're just like, I went through all this stuff. You better fucking like it. And then, <laughs> and then you know, the producers and they all line up on top and everybody's sitting there like, what's for lunch today? And it's like, you're pampered. You go into this space and you're emotionally pampered. Then not only is the colorist sitting there trying to impress everybody in the background, but they're also acting as like a therapist. It's like going to get your nails done where they're just like, how bad was your day? Oh, ah, that sounds terrible. Yeah. That is the company tree way. Do you feel like that's a big part of your job being a therapist? Um, I feel like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of the, clients a lot of the filmmakers you know they are very attached to um especially directors and editors i find attached to mm -hmm. what they're used to seeing um in the offline right so their their picture lock you know they've been editing for so long um and they're used to looking at dailies color um and they're so used to that that when they come in the color grading room and then obviously you know, you start from scratch and you try different things and they go, no, oh, but no, 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 this is, this is too different. And even if it, it looks better, you know, they're just so used to like looking at stuff in one way that you kind of have to work with them and like try different things and get to the place that you want to get to. And you know, it, it, it will be a better look for the film, but mm -hmm. you know, it takes time. <laughs> <laughs> kind of move away from that dailies look it's it's fascinating too because the dailies look is a is a real is a real thing because you're spending so much time and you're staring at this and you're at it for a thousand hours or whatever yeah. it is and then um you just become attached i almost prefer if I'm doing something that I know is going to get color graded later, I almost prefer to be just doing it in the rawest of raw. So it's just like you're, you're looking at motions and movements and all that kind of stuff because then you're not becoming attached to it. Yeah. Um, if you're shooting with like the Alexa and, and anything else and you're importing that stuff into Premiere, it's cool because it'll apply whatever LUT to the footage just for the preview thing. But then you, I find that you're becoming too attached to that LUT. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
So it's an, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, no, no, for sure. That is, that is usually the case. And you just spend like days sometimes, you know, trying to convince them that is, you know, that we should go a different direction. And when you have like, you know, the director, editor, director of photography, they sometimes also have different opinions and you're kind of the, the middleman trying to please everyone and try to find the, the right balance for everyone. What's your process? Like if you get, if you get a bunch of footage in from a television show or something, like you're probably getting what, uh, some scribbled, some notes from a cinematographer of how they thought it was supposed to look, but then are you just running with it initially? Um, it really depends on the, on the project and on the, the DP. But, um, what I would do is, uh, obviously have a conversation with him. Uh, they would usually send, uh, the mood board, like some reference stills. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if they created a lot for the show in the dailies, then I would get that lot and then work to, you know, create a look that would be close to the mood board and then send stills back to the DP and then, you know, talk about it and then go from there. Um, or if they don't have a lot, I would use this the mood board and then just create a lot and then same thing, send stills and then have a discussion about it. Um, and then when they kind of, when we kind of find um, a good first pass look based on the stills, I would just um, go ahead and I kind of apply it to everything as like a base grade. And they would come in and then we would just review everything and then tweak and do secondaries and all of that. That would be the process. Yeah. And for those of you guys listening um, that don't have never dealt with uh, color grading, that's the hardest part. I mean, that's the hardest part about filmmaking is, is just looking for uh, a start point. It's looking for that, for that inspiration or that direction that can make you, that gives you the, it puts you on the right path, essentially, because there's a million different ways to grade a shot. There's a million different ways to do this stuff. And and do you find that uh, having that mood board is, is imperative for you? Do you like to have direction when you get started or do you like to play around? Um, I don't mind either. I mean, when um, filmmakers really know what they want, um, you know, I'm happy to achieve that for them. Uh, but there are also a lot of filmmakers who just, you know, don't come up with a, they don't come with a mood board and they don't really know what they're looking for, you know, and they rely on you a lot to like bring your vision and, um, you know, make the film look amazing. You know, that is always the thing to say, you know, oh, I just want it to look beautiful. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> where to start? <laughs> So we can do that. We can do that. Uh, um, yeah. That's what you. That's what you want to turn around and just go. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Remember that line. <laughs> so what is beautiful? <laughs> um, but uh, it it is fascinating, and you know what's really cool about uh, the colorists that I've I've been able to work with is that uh, the people that I I typically go back to are the ones that know how to not only take my direction, but then bring their own elements into it. Because at the end of the day, that's why you're working with somebody else. You're working with someone to have them surprise you, to have them bring their life experiences. I mean, you're, 
your painting background, your art training, all that stuff. A lot of these directors don't have that. Yeah. So that's what, that's what makes you valuable, you know? For sure. And what you're describing, like you're describing the best client for me, you know, it's someone who wants your input, uh, wants you to collaborate and bring your vision, you know? Um, but there are a lot of clients, a lot of filmmakers who, you know, they know what they want. Um, they just want you to tweak a few things. Or you have the opposite, you know, people who just don't know what they want at all and it's just all about you. Um, so I feel like you just have to, as a colorist, be able to adjust, you know, depending on who you're working with. And when you're doing your, when you're, when you're coloring during the day, right? Or during a project, yeah. like what is your favorite, what is the favorite moment for you? Like what is the part that, that gets you the most excited? I just love the craft. Like I just love sitting down with the film in the first few days and just working on the, on the look, you know, on the lot or yeah, on the, on the look of the film that general um, vibe that you bring, that is really why I love the most. It's such an important job now. I mean, because of, because of how the tech works, um, because of uh, these cameras that shoot things raw, because of these cameras that are shooting with such a wide dynamic range. And right. then there was that whole period of time where people were like, don't worry about it, we'll just color grade it. And then there's the science behind like, shooting it correctly on set and do you have a lot on set are you lighting to a lot on set and then how does that play in the color grade itself it's it's become this whole industry from essentially the the tech companies that have constructed these cameras so it's become this really interesting art form that is completely engrossed in tech like it's a huge tech job correct it, it really is like when you're you know, when you're creating a lot specifically, when you're creating a look for a show, um, you have to know what camera, you know, your footage is coming from. You have to make sure you're not clipping anything, clipping any channels. Um, you have to make sure that, you know, the curve that you're using is the right one for the footage because, you know, LUTs are very destructive by nature. Um, but mm -hmm. even just choosing the wrong one or doing a correction could, you know, that would not work for this footage could just destroy and make it look so bad really quickly. Um, <laughs> so totally. you've got, yeah, you have to, you know, as a colorist, know a lot about different cameras and color science, and um, yeah, that I think that is really paramount. Right, everybody, you know the deal. It is that time to thank the men and women that help make this show possible. I am talking about our sponsors, right? And uh, you know that you probably shouldn't skip past the sponsor section because you never know what I'm going to talk about on this on this part. Might give you some tips, might give you some information, might give you that little nugget that changes your life. So uh, don't skip it, huh? Anyway. 
Uh, first up, I want to thank the men and women over at Puget Systems. I love these guys. I've been talking about them since the beginning. They have been supporting me since the beginning. They have supported the show through COVID, which is huge. And for any potential uh, sponsor out there that has had cold feet and that has been a fucking pussy about, <laughs> about sponsoring this show, take notice, take note. That's why I give these guys such long reads. Um, I'm all, technically, I'm only supposed to do like a minute read for these cats, but they've been supporting us since the beginning and they make high quality stuff. I love their products. I use Puget Systems. I've used them for years on everything I do. Now, if you're a new listener to the show and you haven't heard one of these reads, you're like, well, what is Puget Systems, dude? Tell us. Tell us about this cool company. Well, here's the deal. If you are in the market for a brand new computer, and I know everybody likes to buy shit. It makes us feel good, right? Our lives suck right now. Oh, man, nothing really happened this week. Let me make myself feel better. I'll sign on to Amazon and order some fucking shit that I don't need that I will then be driving with my mask on over to the FedEx to return, right? How about you save all those little gems that you have, save all that money, and buy something that is going to be useful for you because I use my computer every day. And if you're listening to this episode, colorists are on computers all the time. And believe it or not, not all colorists are on Macs. I've seen it. I've seen custom-built color stations that are on PC. PC, he says. Yes, PCs. PCs are stable. PCs are more affordable. PCs are more customizable. I don't care what the sales pitch is. You can buy and build any kind of case that you want to fit any kind of hardware you want in a PC. There are no restrictions. There's a reason why those other systems run so quote unquote perfectly. It's because they restrict the hardware that they put into it. They also restrict access to where you can go on those computers so that your dirty little fingers don't fuck it up. That's how Apple has always worked. They keep you out of the stuff. So PCs, you can build to be incredibly stable. Now, I know what you're saying. Hey, I don't know how to build a PC. I don't even know how to open up a computer. I get it. I got it. Not everybody was a computer nerd growing up. Not everybody was hanging out at LAN parties. Oh, I dated myself by saying LAN parties. Um, But I did the hard work for you because I was in the same boat. Look, I ran a production company for years. We were in the middle of an edit one day and all of a sudden there was an automatic update for the software on the system. And we know what that does. It renders the hardware useless. So suddenly a system that we were still paying for became completely useless. A timeline in Premiere would no longer load the codec that it had loaded 20 minutes prior. I had had enough. I said, I'm done with this. And I did the hunt. And at that time I had a couple of edit bays. I didn't want to build the PCs because I'm a director. I don't want to be tech support. I don't want all my editors calling me up going, I don't understand why it's not starting. You know what I mean? So I had to do the hunt. And it was hard to figure it out because most PC companies were building machines for video gamers. That's it. And I didn't want a car from Fast and Furious sitting on my desk. (laughs) Let's be real. So we hunted and hunted and I found this I'm not going to call them a little company, but I found a smaller company on the West Coast called Puget Systems. These guys are a family-owned company, and what they do is they build custom-made PCs. They do not manufacture hardware, which makes it fantastic because they have no allegiances. 
They're consistently looking for what is affordable. They're consistently looking for what works for each software platform that we're gonna use. This is big because contrary to popular belief, not all hardware works for every program out there. And believe it or not, that new super expensive graphics card actually might make your shit run worse because they're building graphics cards for gamers. Think about that. What I love about Puget Systems is that they benchmark test all the new hardware and they test it hard and they run it through these programs. They know how to use Premiere. They know how to use CAD programs. They know how to use the audio programs. They're consistently trying these things out and trying to figure out what works best and what configurations actually get you what you need. And my new system, I have multiple SSD internal storage drives, which we assumed would be really fast for 4K footage when you're rendering and you're playing back. And it has been doing really well, actually. But they're always changing things. They're always looking for new stuff. It's a really great resource if you're building your own PC or if you want to go out and buy a PC. Go to their website. You can choose a PC based upon the software you're going to use. They offer up three different packages, three different types. I think it's three different. I should go to the website and look at it. They offer up a baseline package to start, but then they like to customize specifically and they love to talk to their clients. So write to them directly, say, guys, this is what I'm doing. They're probably going to fall in love with your work because they love that shit. And then say, look, here's how much money I have. Here's what I need. Can it be built? And what can we do? And how can I make the most out of this cash that I got? They're good at that, man. They will totally help you guys build the PC that works for you. You don't work for it. I fucking hate that about hardware that it's like, no, 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 you're not allowed to do this. I'm not allowed to do this. You're literally a support system. I am not a slave to you, man. You know, when did that become a thing? When did we all become slaves to manufacturers? Think about that shit. Anyway, go to PugetSystems.com. <laughs> also up, my good friends over at Quasar Science, one of the best advancements in the movie business has been lighting LED technology. You've seen it, you've noticed it, you watch everything on Netflix and you go, oh my God, this stuff looks gorgeous. And I sit there and I go, how the fuck did they do this on a TV schedule? If you wanna know, go back and listen to the other episodes. I love the fact that when I sit down and do a fucking podcast, this goddamn guy's out here with a fucking weed whacker. There's no grass outside. You're just spinning that on dirt and rocks. Come on, man. I gotta get him on the fucking show. For the amount of times I yell at this motherfucker, I'm just gonna go out there and get him on the show. God damn it. I love it. Recording out of my home. It's the coolest. Anyway, few, uh, where was I? Fucking Quasar Science, right? Some of the best technology in the business. If you're looking for new light gear, if you want something that is hot, new and sexy, LED will fill that need. If you want something that works really well, it's a workhorse on set, LED will fit that need. Um, they make amazing bicolor light units. What do I mean by bicolor? That's tungsten or daylight balance, properly tungsten or daylight balance to the camera. So it actually looks that way on the camera. They also make rainbow LEDs. Any color of the rainbow will be dialed into that camera. Go back through our prior episodes and listen to the Tim Kang episode from Quasar Science. It's fascinating. Lots of cool stuff. Check them out. They have lots of new stuff going on. They run contests all the time to give away free gear. And I've never mentioned that on one of these reads. Go follow them on their Instagram account. 
I think it's at Quasar Science on Instagram. They are always giving out free gear. Go follow them on Instagram at Quasar Science. And when you go on there, say, hey, Mike sent me. Do that right now. Log in, check them out, leave a comment under anything and say, hey, we listened to In Love With The Process and Mike sent me here. And check, I, they're giving away a bunch of stuff right now. So go check them out. All right. Uh, and as always, you can support the show by signing up by, for a free trial at Audible. If you sign up for Audible, what is it? Fuck, man, I always forget the URL. I'm such a doofus. There's a link below the episode. Click on that link if you haven't already signed up for an Audible trial somewhere on another podcast. Everybody that signs up gets a three-day free trial at Audible, which also comes with a free audiobook. I am currently listening to all of the acting books that I've been uh, researching, and I'm also listening to the Save the Cat series on structure and movies, and formulas for movies, and they're all on Audible, and that's how I'm listening to them right now. Head on over there, grab one of them for yourself. Maybe I'll do an episode. Maybe I'll try to get him on the show. Dude that wrote that. We'll see. Um, but ch- go sign up for Audible if you haven't done so already. 30-day trial. If you can't afford it past the 30 days, cancel it. Not a big deal for us. You're probably going to stick around there anyways. Um, and uh, we get paid. Either way. So it's the best way to support the show without reaching in your own wallet. You know? You can also go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There, there's a sponsors page. If you click on the sponsors page, you can donate directly to the show. Maybe you're like, Mike, man, how do you make money doing this show? I don't. Oh, fuck, man. Maybe I'll buy you a six-pack of beer. Go there, donate me the amount for a six-pack of beer, and then I'll probably send it to Liam. (laughs) So go to inlovewiththeprocess.com, click on the sponsors link. There you'll find all the links for our sponsors, all the links for different ways to help support the show. Some of them may cost you money. A lot of them don't. It really helps. And if you want to fucking do it for free, go to the In Love With The Process YouTube page and click subscribe. We need to get our subscribers on the YouTube page up to 1,000. Once we hit 1,000, we can start monetizing that YouTube channel. And I know you guys are all like passively listening to the show on whatever thing that you have. Eventually, we're going to start videotaping the show. So go sign up, subscribe to us on YouTube now. All right. All right. I've done enough yelling at you guys. I really love you guys. I'm sorry I got to yell so loud, but some of you need it. <laughs> Uh, we also started a, um, uh, my God, what do you call it? Newsletter. There it is. We also started a newsletter. So if you guys want to sign up for the newsletter, I think by the time the show comes out, I'll have the ability for you to sign up for a newsletter on our website. But I know Liam's got big plans for it. We're going to be featuring people that listen to the show, fans of the show, the work that they're doing. We're going to have resources for you, uh, giveaways for you. So go to inlovewiththeprocess.com for anything that I've just talked about and sign up for our newsletter. Um, And there's your homework. And I know it's a lot, but come on, man. You don't pay for the show. And you just listen to this damn thing. This show will run on your phone for at least two hours. So while you're listening to it, just pick up the phone, go to the fucking website. It doesn't stop the broadcast of the show. You could be doing it right now. You could be sitting there right now going, Mike, shut the fuck up and can we get back to the show? Because I've already done everything you asked. Jesus, you're such an old 40-year-old man. What the fuck? 
fascinating too. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's dangerous to buy LUT packages and try to shoot with LUT packages and all that kind of stuff. Like it, like as a cinematographer and as a shooter and as a photographer for years, it was a bit easier back when you were doing film, you know, because you, you knew you had different film stocks. You could choose the different film stocks. You yeah. knew what those film stocks would be. Yeah. And then you knew through the chemical processing what specific things would do. And sure, you could adjust it, but you still had that, that set of rules. And because there are different stages of, of creating the look of a movie as far as like the photography is concerned. And being a, a guy that works with light... The problem that I had when we when we started to move in digital technology and when people were like, just shoot it flat and then let the colors do it, it's like, yeah, but <laughs> what am I doing with the light? How do how am I adjusting these lights if the camera's seeing everything and, and the camera's seeing all this dynamic range? I need I need boundaries. I need some sort of system in place. Yeah. So that way I can know that when I'm adjusting my light based upon the colorist stuff, I'm making those decisions. I'm making the decision on how bright that edge light is. I'm making the decision on how I'm feeling this background. And we've referenced this on the show a bunch now, but LUTs, and so you guys understand, can you explain to the audience what a LUT is? Um, a LUT basically is a map of values um, that would take your, for example, your log footage into Rec. 79 or P3 um, color space, basically. Simply put. <laughs> That's the most nerdy way of saying it. That's the other way. It's just like, you know what? It's a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky one because I was on a panel not too long ago and they specifically asked us to um, just use vocabulary that everyone can understand. Do not go technical. And of course, they ask what is what a lot is. So, um, <laughs> and the question went to um, another colorist, and um, you know he described it really well. But you know, like he said, it's basically an equation. You know, this number will become this number. And I was like, oh my god. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> And then they asked the question again later because they just didn't understand. And then the other guy said, it's like basically an Instagram filter. So I was like, yes, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, like, that's a good way to look. I was relieved on set when I started to work with Lutz. So with these cameras and, and you can tell me that I'm an idiot if I completely describe this incorrectly, but with these cameras like reds and, and uh, any cameras that do raw stuff or even stuff that shoots stuff in uh, footage and log, it's the same thing where they're trying to get as much information in that camera as possible to save your ass. Mm -hmm. So you're looking for as much information in the highlights and as much information in the shadows so that you don't lose it, even though you're exposing for something. So if you're exposing for uh, someone's uh, correct exposure inside of a window, mm -hmm. uh, Outside, it's a huge difference in aperture. Like it's probably, you know, 10 stops above. Yeah. And so depending upon how good your camera is, there's still information in that stoppage. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's why when, when you mentioned clipping, clipping essentially means that, whoops, it got to the point where the camera can't handle it anymore. So now there's nothing in there. So if you try to pull information out of those highlights, there's nothing in there. It's been completely clipped. Yeah. Um, 
And the same thing with, uh, with black and dark in the shadows. And so when you look at a raw image, it is the flattest thing that you've ever seen mm -hmm. out of necessity because it's essentially trying to capture all that different information. And so you can then take that raw stuff and bring it into a color program and color it any way you want. And the sky's the fucking limit. You can do whatever you want with it based upon the exposure and the clipping and the uh, aspect ratio, that, not the aspect ratio, the, uh, oh my God, the level of, uh, there's a term for it, the level of exposure that the camera has. Um, but the ISO? it's really, what is it? Did you mean the ISO? No. Yeah, the ISO, but then there's like, it's not the contrast range, but there's a, there's a term for um, how many, uh, how many stops of information a camera will capture. What is it? The dynamic range of the camera? No. There it is. Oh. There it is. That's why I'm talking to a colorist. <laughs> 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 so, so what I found useful with a lot, a lot, especially when you're on set, a lot is something that is usually put on the monitor. So it's usually put on a monitor output and it's not being applied to the footage. So it's not actually burning into the footage. So you can design a lot with your colorist uh, before you get on set that sort of sets the rules. It builds a sandbox for you and says, okay, this is the contrast range that we're kind of building for this. This is the, the color that's going to be in the shadows. This is the color that's going to be here. Generally, this is what's going on. And why that's useful for me as a, as a lighting tech is that I can sit there and see how my change in light affects that LUT, which is really interesting because then it puts a little bit of creative control back in the hands of the person using the lights again going, well, this is fascinating. What if I fucking overexpose this, this edge light like twice and I put this level of muslin on there? That's interesting. Look what it's doing to the colors and shit. Cool. And that's when the game sort of got exciting for me was when you had that ability on your monitors to generally see yeah. what the color was going to be in the in the edit room, correct? Yeah, no, that's, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it, yeah. And then you then have an ability, like a start point. So like if you've pre-built these LUTs or these looks, then when this raw footage, because like I said, none of that's being baked into the footage. Mm -hmm. So this raw footage comes back to you and now the fucking sky's the limit. And usually, usually as an independent filmmaker, you're like, well, I can only afford you for maybe a week. <laughs> so the sky isn't the limit. And so if you've designed these lots ahead of time and you've spent that time, then the colorist can just start to apply those yeah. lots. And then the information's still there. So just in case, you know, your gaffer was drunk that day. And he decided that he wanted to do some crazy shit with that backlight. You're like, well, can we fix that? And you go, yeah, here's the magic. There's still a couple of stops left in the highlights, so we can try to fix that. Right? Yeah, no, I think that is, um, you know, when you have um, a lot on set, I think that is just the best way, you know. So at least you're on the same page with the colorist. And then when you get into color grading, you just know what it's going to look like, right? So mm -hmm. it's a really good starting point. And, and that's why I like to, I mean, look, I came from being a photographer, so I spent years playing with Photoshop. And I, I still think Photoshop is one of the most magical programs that exists. Every time I go into that program, I'm like, what? This, you could have done this the whole time? Like every time I log in, I'm like, there's a keyboard shortcut that changes my girlfriend's hair color? <laughs> like this, 
There's everything that happens in that program. It's uncanny. I was just watching this really funny post this morning from David Sandberg, the director of uh, Shazam. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was joking around. There's apparently a new filter set in Photoshop where you can change the person's mood and it's sliders by mood. Oh, wow. So it's like, I want to be happy. I want to have more hair. I want to be this. And he just did all that stuff. And he, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily look real, but it's just hysterical that Photoshop is now like, well, shit, everybody's doing this on Instagram. Oh God, so. Right? Yeah. It's like, it's all the same thing. Snapchat, Instagram, Photoshop. <laughs> do you find that you have clients coming in going, Hey, this is really great Instagram filter. Can you redo that for me? Oh yeah. That, it, it just breaks my heart every single time. Um, <laughs> I had it recently, actually. I had, um, <laughs> I had a client who actually colored a still like on her iPhone I mean, colored, you know what I mean. And then she sent the stills to me and she was like, look, that's great. That's that's what I want. Um, and then obviously you have to be very diplomatic and um, kind of say that it, this is this is not what you want. Um, <laughs> we can do it differently. We can do it slightly better. Let me show you. <laughs> you just be like cool so maybe you can save some money and see if instagram's available to do your whole movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know that might happen very soon who knows like nowadays you know with the new iphone like crazy crazy camera like who knows they made like iphone 13 like release like a, a color grading software with it who knows <laughs> It's true. It's very true. But I'm going to say this, and this is a controversial statement. I'm going to say this. This stuff exists, like we've seen this in, in other technologies where uh, you start to lose the human element. You start to get rid of another person that you get to interact with, right? So as a director, you're now like, well, cool. I can sound mix my whole movie on my phone. I can color grade my whole thing on my phone. I could do all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so it makes it makes making my movies better. And I go, mm, not really. Because as a director, most of the time we pretend like we know what the fuck we're talking about. That's, that's, that's a big part of the job. The big part of the job is to sit there and like I'm sitting at my desk, which is doubling as my podcast studio right now. And I'm also prepping a film. And so as I sit here and I go through and I prep a movie, I may have had uh, a stunning nightmare last night. That's like, I know this shot in this sequence. I know what this is going to be. And, you know, he's going to jump through the mouth of this monster and slay the dragon. I, I, can see, I can see it. I dreamt it. You know, I had an epiphany. I was born a fucking genius. You know what I mean? Like you have that moment where you're like, yes. And then you, you draw out that storyboard and you go, okay, yeah, but there's other coverage in the scene and there are other things that happen in the scene. How does he get to here? Uh, oh, I don't know. How does he get to here? Uh -uh. I, I guess, I, well, maybe this, it could just be this. And so then you rough those in. And then when you get on set, you're like, let's shoot the fucking dragon. And you're really excited because you've dreamt about it. And then the assistant director comes over and goes, okay, cool. What's the coverage? You go, um, um. Let me go back and then you look and remember. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you go over and you're like hanging out with the, the cinematographer. He's like, what if we just do a two shot here? And you go, I have an idea. It's a fucking two shot. <laughs> so my point on this rant is that when you, 
have all this stuff that that brings it back to you as a director you don't have all those answers so just because you can color grade something on your phone chances are you're just going to be replicating some other color grading that you saw somewhere else because that's all you can do you're yeah. sort of referencing that thing as opposed to working with somebody who has a classic art training who comes from working with this footage all the time who understands more about the language of color than you do because they're consistently doing it and more than anything else is another human being with their own life experiences and their own ideas there's value to that yeah no and they haven't silicon valley hasn't created an app that has done that yet <laughs> <laughs> maybe one day but no i i agree you know um I think a lot of um, new filmmakers uh, or content creators, you know, did just want um, the content to be like great as fast as possible. And if they could do it themselves, you know, and cut the cost, they would. But they, they there are some limitations because, you know, at the end of the day, they don't have the skills that, you know, colorists have, you know, because we spent years and years training. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a huge value in, you know, in working with colorists and then, yeah, bringing, bringing um, our opinion and our vision on, on, on the world to the, to the work. So, yeah. Totally, totally. And it's, it's, it's a larger conversation about filmmaking in general because with digital came... It's cheaper, right? And that was a big thing. Like it, everything's cheaper. Yeah. And so when you when you talk to your clients, your clients are just like, "Well, I know you're doing a music video, but this isn't going on MTV. So we're going to give you like one one eighth of the budget because it's not going on M MTV." And you're just like, "Yeah, but asshole, this is getting this is reaching like how many millions of people on the internet, and it's it's actually more targeted towards your audience. You should be paying for this stuff." But then the side result of that is that filmmakers are desperate. And uh, creators are desperate looking for work. So they're like, I can do everything. I can do it all. I can do it all. I can color grade it. I can shoot it. I can do all this stuff. And then you realize as you're on set and as everything starts to go wrong and you have no one to rely on, you have no one to give you this input, it starts to weigh down on you and it starts to come completely down on you. And I've seen, I've been there. I've been there with clients where they look at you and they go, well, I guess you can't do everything. And you're like, fuck I can't. I can't do everything because this is it's such a big undertaking to do. And I think that it's the wrong I don't know how we got on this tangent, but I think it's the wrong uh mindset to be in where it's like I want to do it all. I think it's good for you to understand it and to know how these things work because then you can better communicate to individuals that do it all the time. But like you said, there's value in the hours. I mean, how long have you been color grading? Um Seven, eight years. Yeah. Seven, eight years, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not it's not just about making things look pretty, you know, like play with contrast, saturation, and, you know, it's not just <laughs> that. It's, you won't be able to fully understand color grading if you don't understand what's behind it. Color science, like I said, you know, and like cinematography, photography, um, cameras, Nowadays, you know, Dolby Vision, HDR, it's, it's, it's a lot. And what's the deal? All right. So what's the deal with HDR? 
Like, why is HDR such a thing? Like, why is there a show done in HDR? Well, that's the new thing, right? Um, so yeah, it's ba- it, it, it's basically it makes everything brighter, a bit more contrasty. Uh, I personally don't really like it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it when it's so bright that it's blinding you <laughs> on your TV. I just I, I I miss what's happening in the shop. I just I have to look away because it burns my retina, and I just can't understand what's happening. <laughs> my personal opinion on it. Um, I work with a lot of cinematographers who aren't a big fan of the HDR look, you know, like crazy bright highlights. So we tend to, when we do HDR pass, we tend to keep it to, um, let's say, well, 400 nit maximum. So it's Mm -hmm. like top 1,000 nit, but even our TVs can't display 1,000 nit, so which is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) That's another funny thing, you know. Um, they're selling HDR, but your TV can only display maximum 300, 400. They're saying 600. I don't really believe that. Um, <laughs> so it's just like a, a brighter image, basically. I have, I've, I've t- I think I've told this story before on the show. Um, I used to have a sponsor. I used to have a sponsor that was a, a monitor company. And so they sold monitors. And I would go out to NAB and be a guest uh, speaker for, for a bunch of these things. It was part of my sponsorship thing. Yeah. And I went out to one of, one of the years I went out to NAB. And I met the president um, of this company, big company. And uh, he came over and he goes, we, we really love everything you do, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, great. And he goes, I want to show you the new tech and I was like, cool, you know, and he took me into this like boot, like, like a black, like cave, like the shrouded little cave <laughs> and brought me inside and showed me these HDR monitors and this HDR technology. And he's like, what do you think? And I'm like, so you can see all the way into the blacks and stuff and you can see all that stuff. He's like, yeah, it's great. You can see all the dynamic range and all that stuff. I go, I hide, I usually hide cables. <laughs> in the in the shadows but you know like the cables that go to lights that we can't get out of the shots we're just exposed to get rid of those i don't want you to see the cables in those shots and he's like yeah but look how great it looks and i go dude i don't like any of this and he's like (laughs) and he looked at me and he went well i got a warehouse full of these things so we got to sell them and i went uh yes there it is there it is our business the big part of our business. I've got a warehouse full of these things and I got to fucking sell them. And you're just like, God damn it. Why do we need HDR? <laughs> it worked. Like it worked. Like HDR is everywhere. You go to any Best Buy or any big supermarket and HDR is everywhere. And people are loving it. Even, even if, you know, they, they don't understand it. Um, they just love it. It's yeah, it's more more definition. It's uh, brighter, but uh, everyone is buying those TVs, you know. So it is working to to um, to a degree, even even if the technology, in my opinion, is just not there. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but you know, and, and I'll be the one to say it. I'll get the brunt of it. I look. 
there's a, there's this whole thing where like I could watch a movie, one of my favorite movies on an old TV VCR combo and still love that movie and still love the mood and the tone and the vibe with it. And so you hit a point with this stuff where it's like 8K, really? Mm-hmm. Do we need 8K? Oh, what is 8K doing? Oh, great. Now I have to buy more storage units. I have to buy more expensive systems. I have to buy new monitors that are 8K. What am I doing? I'm like, oh, you're you're buying a new Lamborghini. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> and I've had I've had episodes of the show where I've talked to gear manufacturers. I did a really good one with um uh who was it? Ted Sim or Andy Mogul. And I was talking to him from Indie Mogul, and he was just saying that that's a big part of our industry is that the gear manufacturers have sort of infiltrated themselves pretty deep into the blood of filmmakers and producers. And so there's a whole there's a whole thing on like, I need to have the latest gear, I have to have the hottest new tech, and I have to have all this stuff in order for my movie to be good. And you're like, yeah, but you, you know, what are you shooting? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what's in front of the camera? Yeah. Um, and as a direct result, you have to stay up on all that technology, which must be exhausting. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to HDR grading, you know, it's it's changed a lot of things for sure. Um, all the, for example, all the print emulation lots that I was using for, you know, for a theatrical grade or even for um, Rec 709, mm-hmm. I had to adapt those in HDR space. So... You know, because obviously it's a much bigger space and you can't just use like a, a P3 or Rec 709 um, yeah. emulation yeah. lot and then extend the range after that, if you see what I mean, because it will never look right. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like you're grading in like a tiny, tiny space and then you're extending that, but it's just not working. You have to start with HDR, with the bigger space and then, you know, go down. So that's how we're, that's how we're doing it now. Um, the HDR grade is the master grade. And then you just, you know, convert down to Rex 09, P3, or now we have Dolby Vision, which is another, <laughs> another beast in itself. Um, so yeah, I mean, you just have to stay on top of it, on top of the technology, because it's just changing constantly. Does the tech excite you at all? Are you excited by that, or is it is it the devil that you deal with? Um, I mean, I'm excited about it in the sense that um, I just love to learn about new stuff, so I do like that. But it should it it is getting really complicated, and there are a lot of people at work who who still struggle with understanding Dolby Vision and how it works and what it is. And I completely get it. Like, you know, a year ago, I was confused as well. And it, it, it's all very complicated. And mm. it doesn't need to be. But it is the world we live in. That is the direction we're taking. So we <laughs> have to stay on board, keep learning, and that's it, you know. It's this strange blend. It really is. When you think about... The results of the the digital age and the technology that has come with it, it's like the um, the artists are almost trying to keep up with the tech. And uh, I talk about this on, on every episode because I'm sponsored, the show sponsored by a computer company that does stuff. And, and 
and I'm always bitching to them about it, where you hit a point where you're like, can I not be on a subscription-based update way here? Because I'm in the middle of an edit. How about, how about you guys don't touch Premiere for like a year? How about that? How about I can just continue to work with what works right now for about a year before you suddenly send me some software update? Right. And, and now like my, my, my timeline doesn't open. <laughs> yeah. It's insanity when you're working with that stuff. And I, like, I guess I, I only bring it up because you're probably deep, deep, deep in that all the time. And so that must, uh, it must be this interesting balance between like being an artist and then being a tech at the same time. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fine balance. Like it's, I have to say, it, it, nowadays I feel like it's 50-50. You know, when you're grading a show, yeah, it's all about the, the creativity and all of that. But when you're starting a show, you have to think about, you know, when you send, when the VP goes on set with a lot that you're creating, like there's so much you need to think about. Like, is the show going to be HDR? Because that's the other thing right now. Like, you know, you don't always know if the show is going to be HDR or not. So, you know, you have to like harass the studio and like make sure you have all the information um, mm -hmm. to kind of figure that out. And then when they come and do the grade with you it's again like you have to think okay um i need to use this tool not this tool because this is gonna clip my highlights it's gonna clip the blacks i need to be able to have the range there and then same thing when they happy with the grain they go away then you the last step which is you know the deliver deliverable which i'm not too involved but still you know there's a lot to think about so it is 50-50, I would say, creativity and your technical knowledge. Well, let's pivot a little bit because I, we've, I, you know, I've been just bitching about tech. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about your work. Like what, if you had to pick like one or two frames from the stuff that you've done, what is, what is your favorite thing that you've colored? Um, it would be a frame from... You should have left um, a feature that came out in June, that actually finished mm -hmm. earlier in the year, um, directed by David Kep, um, the writer of Jurassic Park, and mm -hmm. shot by Angus Hudson. Um, loved that film, loved the look of it. We actually spent two weeks, nine hours a day together with Angus um, to create the look for the film. So I think that was the most intense grade I've ever done. But <laughs> it was so good to just have him with me all the time. And he's such a lovely person as well. So that was great. Uh, but the exchange, the collaboration, that it was just amazing. I absolutely loved it. So it will be this project. And then Monsterland. Monsterland mm -hmm. um, on Hulu. Um was great as well very different very soft um very soft contrast um yeah so that would be the two do you have do you have a um a preferred like what do you lean on you know what i mean like when you're when you're looking at footage and you're not really getting much direction from the person are you are you like look i 
I, I prefer to have contrast like this, or I prefer to have my colors like this, or, or are you, I mean, do you ever read a script or do you ever look at, are you looking at the whole piece in its entirety before you color grade? Or are you just looking at individual scenes? No, I'm looking at the, I try to look at the entire piece and try to really get a feel for it. Um, you know, and figure out what would work, what would not work, what would help. Um, I'm not a big fan of heavy contrast in general. Um, just the right balance, you know. I do like um, a cinematic look, like a filmic curve. I do like that. Mm -hmm. um, in the blacks and the highlight roll-off, like that too. Um, yeah, so I, I tend, I would say, I tend to go for a filmic look um, on most um, projects where I can, obviously. Yeah, it's fascinating how we gravitate towards that look because you're not the first colorist to say that. And even myself, when I'm when I'm doing my stupid little color grades on my on my end, or if I'm doing Photoshop stuff, I tend to go to that. It's probably just because of the history of it, right? It's probably just because we yeah. associate that, you know, that quality with right. that with that type of yeah. Exactly. Right? I was just going to say that. I think we associate that with quality, and you know the past you know film and what we used to to see you know um high-end films that's what for me in my head is you know um mm -hmm. i don't like harsh linear highlights where it just blows out and just you know it looks very 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 digital and clipped um and just harsh saturation as well very uh, mm. yeah that, uh, that uh, that's not my cup of tea um so yeah film all the way <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating i remember seeing or listening to an interview with george miller and george miller uh i think he made a funny comment and i'll probably i'll probably screw it up but he made a comment where he was like uh they someone asked him like why is the new mad max so saturated and so colorful and he's like at what point did we decide that the future was desaturated? <laughs> at what point did we decide that every post-apocalyptic world we're in is like blown out highlights and desaturated? It's like, well, when was that? Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. It's very true. And, you know, and looking at that, Max, he also did that uh, alternate version where he did it essentially almost like a chrome black and white, okay. which... Um, yeah. Which was fascinating. What What's your opinion? Did you like the way that uh, Fury Road was color graded? Um, oh God, this is this is going to sound really bad. I watched it on the plane, so I can't. I feel like, and I never got the chance <laughs> to watch it again on proper screen. I have a really good TV at home, and I feel like I should watch it again. Um, but on the plane, it looked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It's like the, the perfect. Are you color grading on an airplane screen all the time? <laughs> um, it was. I, I thought it was great. Um, I think I thought it worked for the apocalyptic world that it created. Crazy visual effects. I thought it worked, but yeah, I have to watch it again. I feel like it's. It is. I can't judge like barely. <laughs> <laughs> is there a film that you 
like absolutely die for the cinematography? Is there a movie that always comes to mind for you? Um, actually, yeah, a film um, that um, I worked on, Nocturnal Animals. Oh, yes. Oh, I, I just absolutely love everything about this film. Oh, yes. Did that movie do well? Hold on a second. I can't remember. I, I don't think it did really like crazy well i mean it's pretty pretty depressing it's it's very dark very dark story um oh, right this was the to- this was the tom ford one he was in he it was like a beautifully shot movie it was um it was great yeah so that will be that'll be one of them oh my god well, that must have been really what did you do? Were you a colorist on that or were you assisted no, on that? What I was assisting on that one. That must have been a fascinating color grade because uh, that obviously from his fashion background, that movie was like incredibly fashion inspired and the photography looked like really beautiful, almost like Annie Leibovitz sort of fashion. Um, amazing film. If you guys haven't seen it, go check it out. Nocturnal Animals. It's really fantastic. That's a good pick. Is there another one that you love? Um, I'm sure there there are loads, but this is the one that when people ask me this question, this is the number one that always you know go to. Uh, what do you love about it? What are the what are the aspects of it that you really do? It's just the the look of it, the the level of contrast and just the texture of it, right? Like mm-hmm. it's. It's just film, you know, it's, it's just something that is hard to explain, but like when you just watch it, it's just the texture of it, the way, the way everything moves, it's so poetic and saturation and, you know, but like very, very soft, you know, not too much in your face, but even though it's quite a saturated film and quite contrasty, but it flows, you know? It's not overpowering. It's not in your face. Was it, uh, do you remember the tech specs on that? Was that shot digitally or did he shoot that film? Do you know what? I think it was shot on film. I'm trying to remember and I feel terrible because it's one of my favorite looking films. Yeah, I can't remember. It wouldn't surprise me, him being from the fashion world. It would not surprise me that he would be like, hey, we're doing this 35. Um, and it's got that smoothness. It really does that. Yeah. That like, there's something really smooth about a lot of film stuff. And and then you can see it in the grain. Like the grain is a huge part of of uh, 35 millimeter, and and a lot of people don't really recognize that. But okay. and I think a lot, a lot of people just don't understand how film works. You know. Yeah, I mean it's. Uh... You know, if you haven't grown up with it, I haven't, but I've learned um, how it works. And um, I actually recently bought a film camera. I'm still still need to get it, um, but it's in the post somewhere. But <laughs> yeah, my intention behind that was just to, you know, just shoot on film, uh, different time of day, different things, and just see how it how it ends up and then see how grain different stocks, how it looks just, you know, for my personal knowledge and just 
to do something during COVID, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. And film is, look, there's, there's a reason why people get real nerdy about film. It's, it's a different, it's an entirely different vibe. And, and not only is it a different vibe when you watch it, but it's a different vibe when you make it. Like, film yeah. is very, mecha very mechanical. Like, I, my, first, my first few movies were shot 16. Um, it's mechanical. So you, you, you have these cameras that are just, they've been around for over 100 years or whatever it's been. Um, they're perfectly manufactured little gearboxes that are astounding the way that they work, the way that they've figured all the way out down to the millimeter, down to the, to, to the, to the smallest measurement of where the hook reaches and grabs and, and fits perfectly in the little uh, uh, holes alongside the film and pulls it down to the next frame. And the timing and the precision, it's like a Swiss watch. Like film cameras are amazing. And then the the format itself unlike when you and i mess around with digital stuff which essentially is like a bland little folder sitting in, on a hard drive and you double click on it and it's a packaging of like ones and zeros yeah. um film is this 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 alive thing it's a it's a piece of celluloid that essentially contains i'm gonna i'm gonna do a terrible job describing it essentially contains all these little crystals these little crystals that are that are uh, receptive to light yeah. yeah and then dependent upon the size of these little crystals is the film grain that you're going to get and if they're smaller crystals then you need more light in order to register on them if they're larger crystals if you're getting it like 800 film stock a thousand iso you start to really see that grain because those are the crystals floating around in the images mm-hmm it's really cool shit. It's like Art. the most or most organic way to capture light, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, and even like the the bath, the chemical process, even that is just like you know, yeah. you don't do that anymore. Even that is just very like poetic and romantic to me like it's yeah, the whole process. I just I love it. I wish we could go back. It's magical. It really is. And look, there's, it's not better. It's just, I talk about this on the show all the time because we recently, I got so tired of music and I've been a music video director for years. I've been in music for years and I feel like Spotify and, and algorithms really kind of destroyed music for me. Mm -hmm. um, and so my girlfriend grabbed me a vinyl, a record player for Christmas yeah. and and I was like, really? I'm going to do this? I'm going to become a hipster and I'm going to have a record player? Uh, and so then one of the things that I loved about it was that it changed my interaction with it physically. So going to record stores again, flipping through albums and looking at art and seeing that art large and being able to, to hold it, to touch it, to smell it, and then playing an album and actually having to flip an album over and have to line the needle up and and do all this stuff it it immerses me you know what it does is it focuses my attention right yeah. on what it is that i'm doing more you know yeah it's very similar to film in the sense yeah 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 because then you're 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 more in it and i feel like as and i don't know if you agree with me but i feel like in this current world that we're in right now where everything makes things quote unquote go faster but we're we're still interacting with the same same devices whether we're using our phone to 
communicate with each other or order a car or order our food. Right. Like we're just interacting with the same fucking thing all the time. That's it. You know? Yeah. You're doing a million things, whether it's emails, text messages, ordering food. Yeah. It's just a million things and you can't focus on one thing because there's always something else going on in the background. Yep. 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 And it, and I know you're listening to this uh, as a diehard uh, iPhone user. I'm sure you have Apple tattooed on your chest. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm talking to the audience here, but at the end of the day, you have to remember that you're going to hit a point creatively where you're like, I'm, I feel so stagnant and I need some inspiration and I need this stuff. Oh, cool. They're picking up garbage on my street right now. Um, <laughs> the joys of recording from my house. Perfect timing. <laughs> um, but um, I'm just going to talk through it. You guys at home are going to listen to what it's like to live here at home. There he is. Um, but uh, when you're looking for this inspiration and stuff, sometimes it's just really nice to get to distance yourself from that shitty email that you had to deal with with your client before you take photographs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's exactly why I got a film camera to just go out there, see stuff, you know, take pictures, experiment, and just, you know, get inspired, you know, try new things. It will, I'm sure it will help me in my work. Mm -hmm. Well, look, I've been, you know, I've kept you for quite some time. How are you doing on time? Are you okay? I'm good. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so where you, so you're working at Sim now in New York. So that's yeah. where people can find you, correct? Correct. Sim New York. Yeah. Also available. Um, you know, we have a Sim LA office. I can work from there too. Nice. It, right. And uh, you must be busy as hell at this point, being one of the only senior editors in the shop. I mean, it has been really busy, yes. And I have to say, it's been uh, mostly documentary during COVID. Um, there was, you know, obviously a few scripted shows, but it dried out really quickly, um, resulting in just having documentary um, work left. And now it's getting a bit, quiet a bit quieter everyone has started shooting again but obviously they're in that stage so we have to wait until you know they're wrapping you know how it goes so it's yeah. a bit quieter now but it has been busy yes documentaries uh must be a lot more complicated to color grade because there are, there are all sorts of variables and oftentimes you're not in lit scenarios correct yeah it's uh, it's completely different. It's just a completely different approach. Um, it's all about trying to make the best of the archival footage and try to make the interviews or recreation blend in with all the other stuff, you know. And sometimes that's tough because you just don't have any range in some of the, you know, archival stuff or some stills or um, hey, yeah. Um, footage um and you know making it all look seamless sometimes is uh, the challenge for sure and then it seems like you're probably uh working harder for individual shots than you because it's not like you can just sort of cut yeah. and paste a a palette that you've used right. on on coverage correct yeah no exactly every single shot has its own grade like you said you cannot ripple you can't copy and paste it's one shot, one grave. So, and that 
sense, it, it takes a lot more time. Yeah, it must be crazy, man. And and I think a lot of people don't realize that because they would assume that the more expensive shows, that the scripted shows would be a lot harder to color grade to get them looking that way. But at the end of the day, it's because uh, you, if you're doing a documentary the honest way, <laughs> you don't necessarily have all these light setups. You don't necessarily have such a large footprint mm-hmm. um, while you're capturing the stuff. And so you're relying pretty heavily on the, on the, the color graders to make it look really great. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's true. Most of the time though, the filmmakers, you know, they don't really want that. That's a, a trend that I've noticed. Um, they don't want the color to overpower the story. So most of the time I found that, they want to kind of mute everything, not mm. the point where we're black and white, but you know, slightly less saturation and soft contrast to you know let the story speak for itself, basically, and not have any like distracting um, saturation. Um, but yeah, then you have the other kind of client who does want that you know, vibrant and vivid look. And, you know, that's when you're a bit limited with the range that you have available in some of the shots, older shots. Right, because, I mean, that's a big part of what you were saying before. A lot of this stuff is archival footage. So, like, you potentially, like, if you're lucky, you're tapping into, like, old film footage that maybe you can... Uh, rescan in but most of the time that's not the deal you're usually buying stock footage from some website somewhere and and that's completely restricted by based upon however it was shot and then whatever was baked on it at that point correct yeah no it's really really rare that we get film scans i rarely <laughs> get so lucky um usually yeah he like said you know um from the website um or um, some DV cam, or like just really poor quality digital footage. Do you find that if you have uh, a film that has a lot of that, are you working backwards? Are you trying to do a grade with that footage and then make the new stuff kind of match that? Or are you, or is, it probably just comes down to per project basis with that, right? It's Yeah, it's per project. I try to find the right balance, you know. I Obviously, I, the good like well shot interviews, I don't want them to look awful, right? I don't want them to like match the the bad archival shots. So it's it's all about finding the right balance. And sometimes sometimes I have to say you do lose a bit of continuity in um in the interview shot because you're constantly trying to adapt to the archival material. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that you know, to make it all work as a whole piece. That's what sometimes you have to do. It's cool. It's a, it's a really fun job. I mean, the, the time that I've, the the little that I've done, but then the time I've spent with professional colorists and, and watching the trade and watching the technique and it's fascinating. And it's, it's a, like those of you listening that are looking for something that's interesting to work on in post-production. And so, it's definitely, it's, I guess the way I would describe it as a director is if you're building a car and you're going through the process 
of putting a car together and running the car down the line. It's when they're polishing the paint job, essentially. And so it's just, it's beautiful. Like at the end of it, you you see the product that the audience is going to see. It's it's very rewarding, wouldn't you say? No, I love the metaphor. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> um, well, I think I've held you up long enough. We're pushing like an hour and a half. So uh, this is the part of the show that I would usually ask the guests uh, to give a little bit of an insight or some sort of uh, some words of wisdom to the younger folks that potentially want to get into the business. Mm -hmm. um, hold on a second. Apparently, see, I live on a dead end. I live on like a dead end street, and apparently, the garbage truck decided that he wanted to back back down it again. <laughs> like, what did you forget? Something? What is he doing? Oh, he just knows I'm recording a podcast. It's like he's sitting outside with just the beeping happening while he's looking through the window at me. Come on, dude. <laughs> anyway. Um, you guys will just have to deal with it. Uh, so I would say this, what would you, if someone wanted to, if someone wanted to get into being a colorist, if someone wanted to be a senior colorist and, uh, besides the technology, besides learning the tech, which I know is a big part, but then there's a whole aspect of like, you can do a ton of tech research by, like watching YouTube videos and digging deep into it and understanding technology, but it's more than that. I think the job of being a colorist is more than knowing how to use the programs. Yeah. Um, what do you think are the most valuable assets that you have as a colorist or, or where would you tell folks that were interested in learning about how color can shape the tone and the, the emotions of a movie? Where, where should they look? Um, well, I think, to be a good colorist, you have obviously you have to be creative. You have to have a good eye for color. Um, and I would say one thing: um, when I was starting my career, I got really good advice, and it really helped me. It's going to sound a bit harsh, but it really helped me. So I hope it will help you. You just have to be good, and you have to know that you're good. You have to be confident in your skills. Um, and to do that, you just have to practice, 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 be creative. And, um, yeah, that is, <clears throat> that is a big part of it. Um, the creativity and then just be confident in what you can achieve. Yeah, it's good advice. I mean, confidence is a huge, huge, huge thing. And confidence, if you're listening to the show now, hold on a second. Come on, garbage truck, get out of here. Not at the end. If you're listening to the show now um, and you're like, look, I, I have trouble. I'm struggling with confidence and I, I've just got into this or I've been doing this for like two years or three years. It takes time. It takes a lot of time. You've been coloring for eight years, you said. Yeah, it takes time. And, you know, it's a very, very competitive um, industry for colorists, I would say. Mm -hmm. And if you want to succeed, if you want to do, you know, the top shows, you just have to be really good. You have to have that extra 10%, you know, in terms of creativity and skills and talent, really, um, that will allow you to um, do those jobs and extend your, 
your clients list and you know that's how that's how it's going to happen So I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I had a blast talking to Lucy. Um, it's always tough. And I, you know, I can't wait till we're out of this COVID thing. And I know everybody's so tired of hearing about it and talking about it. But man, I can't wait to be in the room with these people because she sounds wonderful. And uh, I have every intention of going to hang out once we can in New York. Um, and that's what I love about this show is that we get to meet really fascinating and wonderful people. And people that are normally locked away in their little dark caves working away and they don't have an opportunity to speak and don't have an opportunity to talk about their work. And that's what we try to give the, them on the show is an opportunity to get a glimpse at the people behind that ginormous credit list at the end of a movie. How many times you watch those credits roll and you go, what the fuck is a best boy? You know what I mean? We got to get a best boy on the show. And write to me on Instagram. What crew position that we haven't had on the show so far would you like to hear about tell me send me a note on instagram let me know who we should have on the show and we'll do our best to find them and get them hooked up and i hope today you've learned a bit more about what it's like to be a colorist there are multiple episodes at this point you can go back and listen we get a little bit more nerdy on the other color on the other colorist episode um, but i hope you understand that it is an art form that is fueled by emotion. It's very exciting stuff. All right, so that's it. I'm not going to do a big outro on this thing. As always, thank you to you guys for listening to the show. Thank you, as always, to the folks that help us with music and that help us with sponsorships on the show. All the links will be below. Please follow through with it. Show some support and love. And I will see you next Tuesday.